Brooklyn's Radio believes your health matters. March is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And there's an amazing charity that we've featured lots and lots of times on Your Health Matters called GRACE. GRACE stands for Gynae Oncology Research and Clinical Excellence. And it supports women with, with gynae cancers by raising awareness, funding research and providing local hospitals with vital surgical equipment. Their mission is to raise standards of gynecological care and um, cancer care and treatment for women across Surrey, West Sussex and Hampshire. They promote the early diagnosis and treatment through awareness and they raise funds to support groundbreaking research into the causes, the the, um, progression and the treatment of gynae cancers. Grace is an amazing charity who've sent us here at Brooklyn's Radio lots and lots of very brave, amazing women who are prepared to share their story in the hope that it will help other women to recognise signs or take away the fear of actually going and visiting their GP. In the UK, 21,000 women are diagnosed with a gynae cancer every year. That's 58 women every day. And sadly, 21 of those will die. Grace is dedicated to this research and um, we're here today to talk about an exciting project that they're involved in called Mirrors. With me, I have Simon Butler-Manuel and Christina Ewins. Simon is the founder of Grace and a consultant gynaecologist and Christina is a senior clinical research fellow in robotics. Hello guys. Hi Jill. Hello. Thanks very much for the invitation. Oh, it's really, really great to have you here. Simon, I've heard so much about you from lots of your patients who all absolutely sing your praises of how great you are at putting their minds at rest. Now, March, as we say, is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. So, Simon, maybe you could tell us a little bit about ovarian cancer, because it is one of the more difficult ones to um, diagnose. Yes, it is. Um, So ovarian cancer is fairly common. I think it's the sixth commonest cancer in women um, and it represents about a third of the total numbers of gynecological cancers that we see and treat but it represents about half of my workload and my colleagues workload um, because the, the difference between this and most of the other things that we see is that it tends to present present at a late stage And in fact, that seems to be particularly true for our population of women in Surrey and Sussex and Hampshire who don't want to bother their GP too much, I think. Um, And the dilemma is that women do get symptoms from ovarian cancer, but they're often not dreadful symptoms and they're often not typically gynecological. So the commonest thing is a funny feeling of bloating or bowel-y, irritable bowel-type symptoms, which everybody gets at some point or other, um, or that might be due to pressure on the bladder causing symptoms suggestive of a urine infection or something like that. So people do get symptoms and frequently do see their GP too. So part of it's educating our ladies, but also part of it's educating our GPs to prick up their ears and take heed Um, because unfortunately around our way we do have a very high proportion of people presenting with very advanced stage disease which obviously translates to worse outcomes overall. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I had a great GP when my children were small and she always said to me, you know your body, you know your children. If you tell me there's something wrong, I will do my best to find out what it is. But I think today GPs are so busy that often they'll find the easiest way of, of getting someone out of their surgery. Um, don't get me wrong, they do a great job and we're very, very grateful to them. it's a them. terribly difficult job. I've never worked in general practice and... Uh... You know, I work at the other end of the spectrum, really, yeah. seeing sort of tertiary referral cases, ladies who need complex surgery and so on. Um, but, yeah, I have enormous respect for them, but I, I, I suspect I wouldn't be terribly good at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, unfortunately, um, people in inner cities seem to be picked up quicker. I don't know whether it's because they're... Um, seen as an emergency or whether people can play more or or what it is but unfortunately our nice well-educated predominantly middle-class population around here um, look after themselves and don't seem to want to bother their GP because Mm -hmm. Dr Jones is frightfully busy and uh, that really they're really not doing themselves any favors I'm afraid this time. Yeah, that's true. Now, mirrors, I read up all about this in advance of this interview, and it's a very exciting project. Christina, tell me more about it. So mirrors really stemmed from the experience that Mr. Buck Manuel and the team at Royal Surrey have got with robotics. And they've been doing robotic surgery for the last 10 plus years now. And our endometrial cancer cases will have, you know, hysterectomies, both of their ovaries removed, and the vast majority of them go home the next day. Some even go home the same day. And so they've got 10 years experience of this. And then they see their ovarian cancer patients that need a midline laparotomy and similar surgery, albeit a bit more, well, significantly more complicated. And they have a length of stay of six plus days. Um, So Mr. Butler-Manuel sort of looked at this and thought, you know, can we improve the recovery, the quality of life for these women with advanced ovarian cancer? And can robotics be applied to these women and give them the same benefits that we see in our endometrial cancer? patients now this has been done like the feasibility is you know is established to some extent in the you know in the, in america in italy etc a number of retrospective studies have been done and in fact mr butler manuel's done quite a few over the last 10 years but there's no good quality randomized control evidence to prove that this surgery is as good as if not better than a laparotomy in terms of the quality of life etc and that's what we want mirrors to show Okay, okay. So Simon, you know, what inspired you to to develop the research? It must be such a difficult thing to decide to do something like this because of the funding and everything else. Yeah, um, the idea is a a simple one, really. Um, You know, because ovarian cancer spreads around the whole tummy cavity, as I said, most most women, 70% or so, present with what we call advanced stage disease, stage three or four disease. So the ovaries sit down in the pelvic area and uh, for cancers of the womb or you know, any other more standard hysterectomy, um, the operation's completely contained within the pelvic area. But for ovarian cancer, the disease spreads frequently to the upper half of the tummy, around the stomach and around the liver and might involve the bowel. Um, and so in order to do that with a traditional operation, you have to do, make a blooming great big cut from the 
pubic bone up to the breastbone. Um, and so you can imagine that the recovery from that scale of surgery is very considerable indeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, women with the most advanced age disease, they're often on chemotherapy. We often do a sort of sandwich treatment of some chemo first, then the operation, which is what I do, and then some more chemotherapy after that. So having a big operation and getting over that, it is a, you know, it's quite a daunting prospect. And people do rather dread coming into their operation. And if there's any problem like a wound infection or anything, even relatively simple complication, it can delay people going back onto their chemotherapy, which is absolutely vital part of their treatment. So patients don't like the operation clearly and and it and it can cause problems within itself. Mm. But it's a vital part of the treatment. So um, with robotics, uh, we've had such a good experience of doing hysterectomies, often very difficult hysterectomies, or hysterectomies in very difficult patients sometimes, um, not personality-wise, but sometimes the wrong shape to what uh, surgeons would necessarily choose. Um, so we've had such a good experience, and it's gone down so well with patients that I, I started to think a long time ago, well, could we translate this to these poor ladies with their advanced age ovarian cancer who face a, a bigger operation that we can effectively drive all around the tummy, you see. Um, so we can operate down in the pelvis, but we can also turn around and operate up near the stomach and these all four corners of your tummy. Um, and once we... I've had this idea for some time, but once we got the latest generation of robots that really facilitate this and make it much easier, then... Um, Really, I felt we had the green light to get out of this. Mm. So, yeah, there are a few a few people I've been in contact with over the years, um, particularly one guy in the States who's pioneered it, and um, somebody in Italy. And I've been in conversation with them for years. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a pet idea, but I, I think the potential benefits could be very real. The principal concern, of course, is that we don't want to do a half-baked operation. We want to ensure that it's safe for people and yeah. that they get the same quality of surgery as they would otherwise. Um, so Christina can talk more about that, but I actually think it may actually offer considerable benefits. Mm. And, and tell us what the key aims of the project is. It's really to check the feasibility of it to to get the real um, proof of the pudding the real hard scientific evidence we'll need to conduct a much larger study with hundreds of patients um, and that would involve gaining grants from big fundraising organizations um, and having a multi-center study um, around different centers around britain and um so the fact that the idea has already gained great popularity with patients and their families is great. So hopefully the big fundraising organisations in medical research, it might catch their attention too. Um, 
So yes, at the moment, we're getting towards the end of this uh, first stage of the project, which is really a feasibility study to check that uh, it's safe, that the, the inherent safety of the surgery, uh, that it's popular with patients, that patients are prepared to volunteer to take part in the study, and that we're asking the right tests, that we're, uh, we've got the right investigative tools to equip ourselves to go forward before we undertake such a, a huge undertaking. A big multi-centre study, so it might cost hundreds of thousands of pounds, and uh, we've got to ensure that that money is well spent. Fantastic. And um, we, we've sort of touched slightly on the difference it can make to women with ovarian cancer. The, the difference of time in hospital for one thing, but are there any big differences for people between having this type of surgery and the traditional surgery? The operation itself is the same. It's how you do it. And the, the key thing that we know with um, minimal access surgery or keyhole surgery is that you just get better equipment and it's much less painful. Mm. So if we can do the same operation but you don't lose three months of your life getting over a, a big cut on your tummy. Yeah. Well, that's got to be good news. And, of course, for patients with very advanced stage cancer, they know that their life is going to be limited. This is a life-shortening disease. Uh, they might only have a life expectancy of three or four years. Um, you know, we're, we're great optimists, and every, I think everybody is naturally an optimist. But the hard data are that people might have a life expectancy of less than five years. More than 50% of people don't last five years. Wow. So to lose three or four months getting over a big operation is a very big price to pay for that, the benefits yeah. of the surgery. Yeah, yeah. Christina, tell us more about the key benefits of minimally invasive surgery. So as uh, Simon touched upon, we you get quicker recovery because you've got much smaller cuts on your tummy. But we also know that ladies who, or people who have minimally invasive surgery have a lower risk of getting clots in their legs and their lungs. I think mainly because they're up and about uh, more quickly. They have a lower risk of wound infection because the wounds are much smaller, so they tend to heal quicker. Um, the blood loss is much, much less. And we've seen from our own endometrial um, cancer data that you know our average blood loss for a hysterectomy for womb cancer was about 300 mils and it's now less than 50 mils so that's two tablespoons of blood so it's tiny and actually we've seen despite it being much more complicated surgery with ovarian the ovarian cancer that we've done through mirrors actually our sort of average blood loss is sitting again around the 50 mil mark so you know it's such precise surgery that Mr Butler Manuel's doing that you know we're able to reduce those 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 risks that's fantastic isn't it um tell us the way that you've had to work and manage your your research project during the ch this last year <laughs> so we've been i guess really lucky in some ways that mirrors actually fits in very well with the current pandemic in that it reduces length of stay for patients and patients don't want to be in hospital because they don't want to increase their risk of um contracting COVID they want to stay in their own bubbles and reduce their sort of interaction with other people and obviously the hospital has been under considerable pressure in terms of ITU bed space and HDU bed space and so Mirrors actually has gelled very nicely with that and I think because it supports us being able to provide this advanced um, ovarian cancer surgery 
during the pandemic, we've been allowed to continue recruiting patients because it, you know, it has supported the hospital, you know, for the in last fact, six. In fact, if I might come in there, in fact, <laughs> the, the, the medical director, uh, Dr. Marianne Ilsley, was tremendously supportive. Oh, um, this came to pass, we got ethical approval and so on, at about this time last year. And, of course, just as the pandemic was coming through, and we got a directive, a uh, national directive, to basically close, up, close down all new research studies that were not COVID-related. And I, I have to say, we are both enormously grateful to Dr. Ilsley and the Trust Executive for continuing to support this study. And, it, in fact... We didn't know this at the time, but indirectly, as Christina says, it has actually helped the trust to continue to perform uh, cancer treatment during the pandemic because the vast majority of patients have actually been suitable for robotic surgery. And so we haven't needed to use anything like the demand on intensive care beds, which we normally do for the patients having a traditional open approach to their operation. So we really are enormously grateful to Dr. Ellsley and the trust executives and their support. Yeah. It really has been a game changer and uh, the study seems to be a great success now. Mm. And Christina, you didn't struggle to recruit patients then? during No, this- so we, we, when we set up the feasibility study, um, our success outcome was 25% of people who were asked to join the study, agreed to join the study. And we've had so far 100% of people um, have wanted to um, to join the study because they see the benefits. And despite being very clear that, yes, our intention is to do exactly the same surgery, um, but there isn't evidence at the moment, which is why we're doing the study, to prove that we're doing the same operation with the same outcomes. And obviously we're hoping better outcomes in terms of their reco- recovering quality of life. So, you know, the ladies, the local ladies have been amazing and they're just like, yes, I can't see any reason not to join. So yeah. they've, been, they've been really, really supportive and we're really, really grateful for their, these ladies' support, really. No, that's, that's brilliant. Can people from other hospitals refer people to you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, so there's, for the feasibility study, the surgery is all being done by Mr. Button Manual at Royal Surrey, but, you know, we're very happy to accept external referrals. Fantastic. And Simon, for you, what will be a successful outcome from the research? Um, well, we, we want to answer these questions. So, you know, you will have gathered I'm a great enthusiast about the potential benefits of robotic surgery. Uh, I think it's quite revolutionary. Really. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that for blokes with prostate cancer and uh, other folk with bladder cancers and so on. Essentially, the bigger the operation, I think the more there is to potentially gain from a keyhole approach. Um, So it's important to develop good scientific data to support these developments. They can't just be adopted into widespread adoption of things without scientific uh, data to back it up. So we've got to design good studies to support these things. The United States, unfortunately, has a history of just adopting things uh, without much scientific background. Um, and I think here in Britain, we're well placed to do that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're one of about 30 cancer centres up and down Britain 
um, all with similar workload. And um, I know from my colleagues around the country that people are interested. At the moment, there aren't that many of these robotic systems in hospitals around the country, but most of the large teaching hospitals, cancer centres are now kitting themselves out with these uh, systems. Um, but actually through the Royal Surrey is a bit of a leader in this nationally, and actually that, that was all down to grace. Um, mm-hmm. We wouldn't have got a robot at the Royal Surrey anything like as early as we did had it not been for that original uh, funding from Grace, which pumped the whole project. So, no, thank you once again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant uh, charity, isn't it? So, so you really think that the results of the research could have a real impact on women with ovarian cancer all over the UK? I mean, possibly all over the world eventually yeah. um, with other hospitals? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be suitable for everyone. And we've, for this study, we've selected out those women with the most advanced disease. Um, And also we've selected out ladies who have not got an enormous cyst. If you've got a huge cyst that's occupying most of your tummy, it would seem a bit crazy to start talking about keyhole surgery. Um, So most ovarian tumours are cystic. And so... To be included in the study, we've decided that those with a a mass of no more than eight centimetres can be included in the study. And that's just common sense, really. Yeah. yeah. Because the whole point is to avoid a big incision. If if you need a big incision to get the system, well, you know, why bother using the robot? Yeah. It's... it, we need a way of discovering the cancers earlier, don't we, before they get to that size. But, you know, it's um, that is a million-dollar question, I guess, of how to There's find been, somewhere. You know, there have been enormous sums of money spent on screening for ovarian cancer, sadly without much success. Um, so we do very much rely on people putting their hand up and reporting their symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Could breakthroughs in this research then benefit women with lots of other gynae cancers? Yeah, I think it will lead to greater adoption of this sort of robotic surgery. Um, You know, we've been doing it for a long time. We got our first robot at the Royal Surrey in 2009, as I said, due to Grace uh, funding. And we were unique in being the first to buy a robot initially for gynae cancer use. Almost everywhere else it's been for prostate cancer use and then perhaps gynecologists have come in a bit further down the line. So I think it is another way in which um, the popularity and usefulness of these robotic systems will be adopted around the country because they really are quite revolutionary in that so many more women will benefit from having a hysterectomy by keyhole surgery. The problem with sort of standard keyhole surgery or laparoscopy, as most people will have heard of, um, you know, I do lots of laparoscopic surgery and have done over the years, but there are many people who don't qualify for it. Too fat, too tall, you know, whatever it is, too small, too wide, (laughs) um, too big a lump, whatever it is. So, if you look at the data nationally, 
about 60 plus percent of women having a hysterectomy still have it through a traditional incision, uh, usually a sort of neat bikini line incision across their tummy. But that takes weeks and months to get over. It might leave you with a very neat, barely visible scar, but it takes a long time to get over. And whereas we've shown with our series of... 1,500 robotic operations, and I think about eight or 900 for cancer of the wound, that we can do the most difficult hysterectomies using the robot, and they'll go home within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, the speed of recovery is quite remarkable. Yeah, which ultimately saves the NHS a lot of money. Um, yeah. yeah, and with remarkably few problems. Yeah. So. You know, less blood loss, but less complication. Do you know, yeah. less complication of another routine approach. Yeah, yeah. Christina, um, how has the funding from Grace made a difference to your research? We've we've touched on that slightly, but how, how has it made a difference? Well, without the funding from Grace, I wouldn't be able to run the project with Simon, basically. It's been that critical. You know, Grace is supporting the ability for me to do an MD, which is what I'm doing the project for. Um, so mirrors forms the, the the main part of my higher degree, and without the support from Grace, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to to do it because I wouldn't be able to live. Basically, um, it uh, unfortunately comes down to to that. So you know, being able to provide me with the time off to dedicate to running the project, you know, it's phenomenal. And you know being relatively new to this there is a lot of liaising with people networking with different groups doing a lot of um, grant proposals setting up the ethics liaising with the ethics board making sure that you're following everything to the latter and that takes you know a lot of time and and equally doing things such as this or presenting our work in international conferences and things takes a lot of work to prepare and without the support of grace we wouldn't be able to do that and we wouldn't be able to get that support and knowledge to be able to move forward to the big grant proposal that we hope to do towards the end of this year yeah yeah that, that's very true and and on that whole thing of your different roles how does your role fit in with the patient's journey and their treatment pathway so it, you know it works really well because my role as a senior clinical fellow is helping in theatre, you know, operating, um, going to clinics, making management decisions in clinics and consenting patients for clinics. And that's exactly what I need to do really as part of Mirrors. Um, I speak to patients about the study and I consent them for the study and obviously consent them for the surgery. Um, And because they're sort of my special Mirrors ladies, um, they have a sort of a direct line to me. So I keep in touch with them. So if they've got any concerns, they know where to come. Patients always do better when they're involved in studies if you look at the outcome data for everything yeah the outcomes are always slightly better than they would if they're not in a study yeah and it it's not just that they're going to be treated with the miracle drug x it's also all that attention to detail so to have someone as bright and clean as christina on your wing the whole time guiding you through in addition to all the regular stuff uh is a real asset and so, yeah, I applaud everyone who takes part in this and any other clinical research study. Yeah. Um, and they really do gain from the contact with the research nurse and uh, that whole infrastructure. Things don't fall between the cracks nearly so often as they would in routine clinical practice. 
Yeah, there's lots of management studies. My experience is more on the management side about this whole thing about when you run a research project, the people involved will do better and not necessarily related to your project, but is because they're getting all that attention all the time. And as as human beings, we need attention. We need community to help us thrive. Maybe we can just finish, guys, with me asking both of you really what your what the past year has taught you and what your hopes for this area of research are for the future. Christina, you get first. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the past year taught me? Uh, I don't know. I think, you know, under extreme conditions and, you know, quite a lot of upheaval with, with the COVID pandemic, it's amazing how people can pull together and support how supportive our patients are to get, you know, a project like this off the ground. And, you know, even working with all these um, other organisations like the Ethics Board and the um, Health Research Authority and things, they've all been humendous, you know, amazingly supportive of this research. And as Simon has said, as has the hospital. So it is amazing that given very difficult conditions, lots of upheaval, the staff, the organisations, everything's everybody's managed to pull together really for the benefit of patients. So that's the main thing that it's taught me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Simon. Yeah, it's been very exciting to be involved with it's, it's very nice when people listen to you and um whilst we've all been everyone in the hospital uh, setting has been involved in uh, covid and it's affecting everybody's uh, working practices um it's been very optimistic to do something else as an adjunct uh, something new that's forward-looking but as i said will i think bring real benefits to many many women and could change practice across the whole of the country and uh, in the developed world. You've got to be able to buy an expensive robot, but um, there are big hospitals all over the world that have got lots of money. Yeah. So, and um, because people seem to do so well, I think that I think the health economics will work itself out mm. because people have so few problems. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Christina, did you want to say something else? Yeah, I was just saying you did ask what, what our hopes for the project is. And I think, you know, you asked us, have we been able to recruit? And the patients, as I said, have been so enthusiastic about the story, but not they haven't only been enthusiastic towards us. They've been talking. So, you know, we've had some of the big ovarian cancer charities um, contact us and actually um, Cancer Research UK as well has contacted us because they want to feature the study on their website. So, in terms of what are our hopes for the future, you know, we want to get Mirror's randomised control trial, you know, off the ground towards the end of this year, uh, you know, hopefully either opening the end of this year or, or towards next year so that we can provide this evidence. And as um, Simon said, um, change practice for the better. Fantastic. Yes, I think once again, seed funding from grants may really bring rewards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you both so much. It's a very, very exciting project and um, there's no better month to bring this to the attention of the general public either. So let's hope maybe we can attract some fundraisers as well for for other hospitals who could introduce their own robots. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Jill. Thank you very much. Thank you. Brooklyn's Radio believes your health matters. 